welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. Today, we have a very special guest. Today, we have on Melanie Teresa King. She's the creator of Thinking is Power, an associate professor of biology at Massasoit Community College, where she teaches a general education science course designed to equip students with empowering critical thinking, information literacy, and science literacy skills. Melanie is also the education director for the Mental Immunity Project and CIRCE. Cognitive Immunology Research Collaborative, which aimed to advance and apply the science of mental immunity to inoculate minds against misinformation. And Melanie, it's a great pleasure to have you on. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, absolutely. And so now thinking about it, as Alan introduces you, so I'm wondering, how does somebody who is a biology professor become interested in philosophy? So oftentimes we think of these as two very distinct fields. And so for people who may not necessarily be familiar with academia, I mean, there's kind of like a war amongst like the, the different departments where psychologists, philosophers, biologists, physicists, they're all kind of at, you know, sort of uh, in fisticuffs with one another, uh, metaphorically speaking, obviously. So how is it that you became interested in what is obviously philosophy and tied it into scientific type thinking? Oh, yeah. Okay. So um, that's actually a really good question. My background, my educational background didn't include any philosophy and especially not any philosophy of science, which is why I'm such a proponent of it today. I realized what I was missing. So back up, my, my degrees are actually biology, chemistry, and then ecology. And um, I started teaching at a community college and um, I was teaching, uh, hired basically to teach the non-majors science courses. So when you don't want to be a scientist, when you grow up for the rest of your life, you have to still take some sort of science class. And usually most people take biology, intro to biology. Yeah. Biology to right biology. Oh yeah. <laughs> so one of my favorite questions to ask is, what do you remember from that class? Uh, oh my God, this is horrible. Mitosis. I, yeah, meiosis, mitosis, mitochondria, uh, protoplasm, uh, photosynthesis. Organs, organelles, cells. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's about it. That's literally about it. Okay, so you're throwing biology terms at me and I, I love the sounds of those. I might, do those, um, do you use them? No, <laughs> no, no, absolutely not, not. I can't even tell you probably what half of those things are. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll just be honest. I'll just, I just—I could tell you, uh, meiosis and mitosis definitely go on in my in my body. Yeah, there you go. It's there. Uh huh. Yeah, that's about it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So you're affirming my bias here, which is that people don't remember this. Um, yeah, I must be a lot of fun at parties because I love to ask that question, and usually I get like a deer in a headlight look of like, oh man, I did not want to think about that again. And then there's like nothing that happens beyond that. And this was my experience, right? I was teaching this class and um, actually it was during mitosis that I had my sort of aha moment. And um, I was trying to use issues to teach the concept. And in which case, like cancer is a great issue to use to teach cell growth because cancer is basically unregulated cell growth. And I, I was thinking I was um, equipping my students with useful science to help them understand this. And I looked out, it was near the end of the semester, and my students looked terrified, um, bored, um, a little constipated, as my mom would say. Um, and I thought, what am I doing here? Like, I tried every which way to teach that class, and I finally decided I was beating a dead horse. So I went to the department, and to their credit, so I said... Um, you know, let's evaluate the courses that we teach for non-science majors. You know, why do we teach them? And we all agree it's science literacy. I'm like, oh, great. So what is that? And do the courses we teach do that? And I made the case that IntroBio didn't do it. Um, and I replaced it with another course I call Science for Life. And um, I use the class to teach what I call skills, not facts. And those would be 
critical thinking, information and uh, literacy and science literacy skills. Um, and the idea is that um, I, I don't have my students memorize anything. Like we carry access to all of humanity's knowledge in our pockets. We have access to it, but we also have access to the world's misinformation and disinformation and pseudoscience and conspiracy theories and propaganda and the whole thing. So the better question is when you need information, can you find reliable information and use it to make wiser decisions? So um, I created the course based on that, um, begged, barred, and stole from a bunch of different places I could find. And in the process, what I realized was that I did not know a lot of this stuff. Like, for example, I remember I was teaching uh, cellular respiration one semester, and um, I honestly don't remember if this was majors or non-majors, but it's irrelevant. Um, the students, one of the students during the Krebs cycle asked, how do they know that? How do we know that? And I'm like, well, I don't know. So I, over lunch, you know, there's the chemist sitting in the lunch department, uh, lunchroom. And I'm like, so I had a student ask me this question. And honestly, I don't know the answer to it. And all of them had this like, huh? Yeah, I don't know that. And I, I just got to thinking like how, um, what we know from science is important, but it's less important than how we know it. And so what I want my students to be able to do is um, understand how the process of science is more reliable than most other ways of knowing, especially personal experiences and why we need science to begin with, and then how to be able to find that when they need it. So that's why none, nothing is, um, all of my class is completely open, everything open online. I just want you to be able to use information to make good decisions. Um, I'm not even sure at this point if I answered your question, but I probably should have when you start me talking about this kind of stuff, I absolutely love it. You're just going to have to tell me to stop. Yeah, that's okay. Oh, absolutely. As far as like, I, I'm with that approach, right? It makes sense. I mean, if you just wrote, memorize whatever facts you need just to maybe pass a test or, you know, get that uh, great score at the end of a class or degree, right? On one level, yeah, it's, it's great that you uh, practice your memorization skills, but then you don't really understand why the answers are what they are. In fact, if you if you even got information at one point, maybe something is developed that you didn't know was developed yet. You you receive new info. Well, uh, because the way our uh, beliefs are constructed, right, or or the way um, our understanding of the world is constructed, anytime something outside of our understanding of reality is sort of introduced, you know, just to maintain those current beliefs, right? We want to we'll probably nix out, not even pay attention, or or maybe even react, you know, to conflicting information, and so. Of course, yeah, understanding why something is the way it is helps us in sort of interpreting that information better or new information. Oh, and I want to actually piggyback off of that. So Melanie, I have a question for you. This is going to be a little bit tough. So uh, in my uh, psychotherapeutic practice, what I often have is people telling me, well, my experience matters more than anything else. So yeah, you know, your psychobabble, I understand you're kind of like, uh, you have like a sort of background educationally or whatever, but like, you know, my experiences tell me this. So the question I would have just for any, you know, critical thinker or anybody who's, uh, I guess, let's say somebody who's a proponent of critical thinking, how do you help people or even maybe a difficult, but more difficult question is how do you kind of challenge people who tell you that, no, my experience is key. So I understand that you're telling me that, well, you know, there's evidence otherwise. And yes, you know, there are these people, you know, in these lofty positions who would disagree, but no, no, but this has been my experience. And there's really nothing outside of my own experience that can actually challenge that. That is a really good question. Um, and I'll tell you how I address it in my class, which mm -hmm. turns out to be a whole lot easier <laughs> because mm -hmm. I often joke that I have my students captive for four months, like for a semester, they have to stick with me that they know they want to grade. Right. So we got to work through this process. And the way that I do it is um, 
let me back up here and say that the your question gets to something that's incredibly important and why we need science to begin with. Like a lot of us are conditioned to think that if I saw it, if I experienced it, um, then that is the best way to know something. And actually it's one of the worst ways to know something as, as Feynman said, um, um, the first principle is you must not fool yourself and you are the easiest person to fool. If I just told my students though, that you're easily fooled, they'd be like, uh -huh, yeah, right. Okay. Uh, so I start class by fooling them. Um, I actually start with, um, day one, I read, show them the syllabus, I'm like, this is boring, read it yourself, but you need to know this. Great. Now what I want to do is I have a, a friend, turns out I'm a really good liar too, by the way, I didn't know this. So <laughs> I say, I have a friend and, um, she's a psychic and, uh, she really excels in like personality readings and she knows I teach this class and, um, because we're using this class to teach skepticism, she's offering to you free, if you want to do this, a free personality reading, right? I'm not going to say who she is. She's famous, but you know, later I prime them all kinds of stuff, right? So the next class, here's your personality reading. Okay. We're going to read this silently because we're trying to test how effective she is. Please no, don't let anybody know how effective she think, you think she is. So after they're done reading, okay, let's scale one to five. How accurate was she? And I've been doing this for years. It's probably like a 4.3 to 4.5 out of five. Wow. She's really accurate. Mm -hmm. Okay. Now, if you're comfortable, get with the person next to you and talk about your reading. Why do you think she was accurate? What did she understand about you? And why do you think that might be? So they talk and sometimes it takes them, I kid you not, like 10, 15 minutes before they realize everybody got the same reading. Mm -hmm. I did not come up with this activity. Um, this actually, uh, the original study was by um, four. It was birth from four in the fifties. And it's been done multiple times since then. Yeah. James Randi did it too. James Randi yeah. did it. And it's full of what are called Barnum statements or four statements. It's like, um, you have a need to be liked and admired by people. Sometimes you've wondered whether you've done or said the right thing. Oh my right? God. It's so annoying. <laughs> How did I? It's magic. <laughs> so um, when we're done with that, we get to talk about well, why did you fall for this, right? What were the thinking errors that made you fall for this? There's confirmation bias and there's Barnum statements and there's appeal to emotion. And yeah, I um, appealed to authority and I primed you and right? all of those errors. But the point is you can be fooled. And then, um, then I move on to witches and why, how we come to believe things. Like a lot of people don't realize how we've come to our beliefs. And most of the time it's because we heard it and we believe from someone we trusted, like somebody in our, our social group, um, we experienced it. And we don't question these things, especially if they fit with everything else that we know. So um, I back up and here's what happened. I start, okay, lecture. I don't want you to take a single note. What I'm going to do is for the next like 45 minutes, I'm going to tell you a story. And at the end of the story, I want you to tell me why I told you this story. So I go through like the witch trials and the, the like, um, how convinced people were that witches were causing birth defects or crops to be destroyed or diseases or whatever it was. And they were so convinced they're they would kill people, right? And the best evidence, of course, is being accused or confessing. And why did you confess? Well, because they tortured you, right? So let's talk about some of those tortures. Here's the Spanish boots, right? And here's the water torture. And here's the all of the different ways. And it is traumatizing, right? And you get through the end of that, I'm like, okay, what did people confess to? Here's the things they confess to. And it's absolutely just bonkers, the kinds of stuff people actually were convinced they did. They didn't realize it was torture. Okay, so at the end, why did I tell you this? Um, 
they were really convinced they were right, right? Mm-hmm. They were positive. They were confident. How good was their evidence, right? And so students get to take an outside view. And I think this is really important too, by the, by the way. So um, it's, if I went in immediately on one of their beliefs, especially one that was really important to them, they wouldn't hear me. They'd be triggered. And so this way I get sort of like this back door. They get to look at this from the outside and they go, oh, you know what? That's actually not very good evidence. Baby step two. Okay. What might you believe? Okay. And then I go on into the limits of perception and memory. And we talk about all the ways that our perception can fool us. And all the ways that our memories can fool us. I tell them my ghost stories, right? We actually use ghosts and aliens and so on. And um, it's it, it's all of this, like, um, it takes, it's a process. And it has to take this kind of time, I have found, for students to really internalize um, how easily they can fool themselves. I actually have been teaching other science courses that do the traditional way, where you start with, like, the scientific method, and then it goes into all the different things that we know from that field and the, from the process of science. And what I find is, um, if you don't establish why we need science to begin with, then the method doesn't make sense. Like, why do we need science if our experiences are sufficient? And the point is, our experiences aren't sufficient, right? We can easily fool ourselves, like Feynman said. So we need pro- a science to help us not fool ourselves. So that this idea that, um, like, I saw it, I felt it, like, I know homeopathy works, I tried it and it worked, or I know ghosts are real, I saw one, right? Or um, we need to break that down. And I have found no quick way of doing that, which is why I spent so much time telling you this, because I write it on my website. And in a perfect world, people would like take the the flow through in the way that I intended them to, but they come from all different places. And if you just jump in later and then hear that your personal experiences, you know, like, yeah, that homeopathy wasn't necessarily effective. You just fooled yourself. It doesn't land. Um, If you know a shortcut and can help me, that would be great. (laughs) But that's how I found to do it. I, I really no, I, I think I really like that approach of kind of doing it from the outside. And as you mentioned, sort of baby stepping them towards kind of looking at their own views, right? Because if you just start there with like telling somebody, oh, your sense of the world is not always correct, or it could be false, right? Uh, pe- that would cause like uh, people have, um, I'm not sure if this is the official uh, term for it, but uh, like a, comp- a competence preservation mechanism sort of in them, where it's like, oh, if I'm not right about uh, my sense of the world, what else am I wrong about? And all of a sudden they're like their emotions, their feelings kind of drop and they don't want to let that happen to themselves. So they'll kind of try to rationalize, not even consciously ways to sort of reject maybe, um, that they're fooling themselves or they have a wrong concept of the world, but then introducing that, Oh, something's happening. Like, look at these other examples where people got things wrong. Like, Oh, uh, the, uh, Salem witch trials, Oh, um, maybe maybe the Holocaust or something like that, or uh, just racism in general, like introducing like how people sort of maintain these beliefs and they were so sure that they were right. And then it kind of makes you then reflect on yourself. And then, you know, you know, the, the difficulty here is now uh, hearkening back to uh, David Myers and the Lake Wobbegan effect. People always think, well, that's not me. That's not me. That's those guys. You know, that's where the trick comes in. Well, I feel like that that is Okay, so if if you were just telling people how they're fooling themselves, yeah, totally, I I I'm with you. But then when you look at countless examples of how other people yeah. do it, um, and then teach around it too, mm-hmm. like about biases and uh, placebo, yeah. like homeopathy, right? Like maybe maybe somebody um thinks that they had a great you know yeah uh, actually experience, oh, but 
you're right. You're right. So actually, I want to actually, can, can I segue really quickly? So I actually like that because here's what I come up with uh, or come up against rather in therapy all the time. And I think this really applies here. So in therapy, there's this idea that, uh, you know, people have to want help. So a lot of times what happens is let's say you develop a relationship with the patient and then the thinking is, well, what they're going to do is they're going to kind of extrapolate that and then into the world. And then they're going to go off and then they're going to have healthy relationships. Actually, that doesn't happen a lot of the time. Uh, so what happens is they have a good relationship with a the therapist and then they still hate everybody else. So here's my thinking, right? So because we want people to become critical thinkers and we want people to become better thinkers, but how do we get them to actually see what we want them to see? So like in the therapy office, right? Uh, you know, we hope, okay, hey, no, no, I'm not like special. I want you to know that people are naturally good. People are naturally caring. Uh, they call this emotionally corrective experiences in psychotherapy. How do we get people to do that on the outside? In this case, in relation to critical thinking, because a lot of times, man, and you know, this is why I was kind of uh, up against what you were saying was because the thinking is, okay, you know, we can see that in somebody else, just like kind of in therapy, you could see, well, that's just the therapist, right? Everybody else is a piece of shit. So how do we get people to kind of more generalize and even include themselves and say something like, oh, okay, wow, if this person or this whole entire group of people can fall into these thinking traps, maybe I can do that too. Well, uh, so Melanie, right? Your, 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 um, for example, like the, uh, personality, uh, trait, uh, sorry, the, the, per the, psychic who was giving people their personalities but everyone had the same sort of personality everyone's like oh this is so accurate right i mean so like that's 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 like a way around that right you sh you show them like oh i i've totally fooled you guys like you totally bought into this like that right yeah um yeah there's so much there um first i would say that um the reason I start with those kinds of beliefs, like um, the personality assessments and the witchcraft trials and even ghosts um, and aliens is because um, most people, most people aren't really triggered by that in that it gives them a, um, a belief they don't care about as much that isn't necessarily attached to their identity. Um, and it allows them to practice those skills that I want to teach them about how to think critically. But if I went in, so like if I go into class and I start with like GMOs or vaccines or climate change, I'm going to immediately trigger some people and they're not going to hear what I have to say. So I start with things that aren't so triggering. And I love to use humor. So if given an opportunity, I'm going to use a humorous example. But the point is I'm trying to get them to practice those skills and then build up over time to get them to apply them to the more um, identity defining beliefs while also getting them to practice not making beliefs identity defining, right? So all of that is happening concurrently. The other thing is um, knowing how to think critically is not enough. We have to want to do it. Yeah, And that's what I hear you say, right? Um, and so the way that I have found to do that is, um, I honestly don't know how effective this is, but anecdotally from my students, I, I hear that it works. I always use the what's the harm question. Like, what is the worst thing that can happen if you don't think critically about this? So like homeopathy, for example, it sounds like maybe it's not so big of a deal, but if you're teaching, your, your, you're treating your baby, let's say with a homeopathic flu remedy, and the baby actually has a bad flu that's not being treated and they could die from it, then the worst thing that can happen for you falling for homeopathy is that your child can die. Right. And I give them real examples of it, right? And so, um, you know, the worst thing that can happen from somebody believing in witchcraft, well, let me show you what they did to this poor woman. 
Right. right. So there are real consequences to our beliefs. If we believe something, we act on it. And so, um, yeah, it's the, 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 I use the, what's the harm question because I'm trying I, to motivate them. By the way, I actually do the exact same thing in my practice. So when, so, so we, I know you talk about core beliefs and I really want to get into that, why they're important. So a lot of times when somebody tells me, well, you know, it's, it's not a big deal that I have these beliefs, you know, I've gone by in life so far. Right. So my response is always, okay, but let's talk about what's the worst case scenario or even what's likely to happen. Right. So let's say worst case scenario is maybe hypothetically, you be now become severely depressed. You're incredibly lonely. Uh, you have a deep distrust of people and then it further pushes you away from them or pulls you away from them and pushes them away from you. Uh, and then on top of that, let's say, you know, let's say if it's not a worst case scenario, then at the very least you remain stagnant. And then if you remain stagnant, let's talk about what harm can come from that. Well, okay. You know, you're still pretty depressed. Uh, you're still finding that your life doesn't have much purpose. It's still hard for you to connect with people. Yes. You might not be suicidally depressed, but we don't really know what the risk is at this point. Cause maybe you can become that way. So I love that you do that. Cause I do the same exact thing. So the thinking oftentimes is what's the harm in my beliefs. And, you know, again, now we're going into core beliefs. What's the harm in the way I see the world. I mean, I'm still here, right? I've still survived. And I'm like, well, okay, yeah, you might have survived for, let's say, I don't know, 40 something years, but how do you actually, how can you predict where this is going to lead? And also, how do you know that there's not going to be some sort of turn where let's say now there's a crisis or a catastrophe and now you don't have much of a social support network. And now all of a sudden your life does become catastrophic. And I love the thinking of, you know, what's, what, what can actually happen with like, you know, Andy Norman, who would, uh, he would call these, uh, the downstream consequences of beliefs. And I love that he would say they're just as equally as important as the factual side of it. Mm. Yeah, especially if we're acting on beliefs that aren't aren't true, of course. Right. Um, and and I I do that with my students. There's so many unfortunate examples of people believing these things. But yeah, people do tend to protect themselves by saying, well, you know, um, well these are my beliefs and they're private, right? Or I'm entitled to my beliefs. I I I don't know about you. I hear that a lot all the time. <laughs> and and it legally is true, of course, right? You are entitled to your beliefs. But we do act on our beliefs. So was the person who tortured a woman to death because he thought she was guilty of witchcraft entitled to those beliefs? Right. Right. Yeah. And then, you know, the book that I feel like changed, I don't know if you've ever read it. Uh, so the book that really like changed my perspective and my life in general, which is kind of interesting because I would call it one of the foundations of my psychotherapeutic practice. And it's not a, a, a clinical psychology book per se. Uh, so it's called Belief by James Alcock. It's like oh. this. I, yeah. All right. You read it, right? Oh my God. So I think it's like about 600 pages. It's just this enormous book on just like the entire history of beliefs. And you're like, oh my God, man. And he goes into like honor killings and beliefs, uh, you know, like in honor cultures. And you're just thinking, oh my god man so you're telling me that people like children women and just god knows how many people are being killed just because of like dishonor to their you know to their family or to their tribe or whatnot and that's all based on belief system so it's so wild what do you think of the book yeah um I, honestly i'm thinking about i heard him on a podcast and um the question was what is a belief mm -hmm. it was one of those like that's a really good question <laughs> <laughs> like this is literally somebody who's written the book on what beliefs is but even that word is so hard to define right because people will say well um i also you should probably know this spend way too much time on social media with my mm -hmm. my sites and so um i interact with a lot of commenters and it allows me to see how i need to improve my communication but one of the things i hear repeatedly is about beliefs people don't understand what they are um and to be fair they're hard to define right like alcott spends 600 pages doing a brilliant job talking about beliefs belief formation the consequences of the epistemology behind beliefs but like if i were to say that you know i i'm in, entitled to this 
belief or, oh, um, one of my favorites when people will say, I don't have any beliefs. I have knowledge. (laughs) That's good. Interesting. I I hear that all the time because people (laughs) think beliefs are just things that are like faith-based and faith is obviously a different way of coming to beliefs than evidence. But of course, if you think something is true, that's how I define a belief at least. It took way less than 600 pages, but I'm probably wrong on lots of levels. Um, But yeah, I I feel like, um, I feel like people don't understand beliefs, belief formation. Um, One of my favorite things, and now I'm just rambling, but. um, No, go for it. Okay. So um, I'll ask my students, um, this is generally early on the semester, because I, when I talk about like epistemology, how they come to their beliefs, I'll say, okay, how many species of elephant are there? Hmm. Do you know? I don't. Uh, 31. <laughs> He's just, just kidding. I don't know. <laughs> he just guessed. <laughs> well, so how confident are you? Oh, it's a good point. Oh my God. Uh, a one. <laughs> out of what? Okay. On a scale of, of one. Oh, okay. So that was pretty low. How would you feel if you were wrong? Uh, oh yeah. I wouldn't care. Yeah. That's not one of those important, you know, identity sort of uh, beliefs like related to that. Yeah. yeah. So there's three. Um, as we currently define them. Of course, species are really difficult to define. There used to be two. Now we say three because the African elephant has been split into the savanna elephant and the forest elephant. Now we get into the, all these weird like biology concepts, which is really fun to talk about. But back to, do you care that you're wrong? No. So now that you know there are three, are you going to accept that? Oh, I'll, yeah, I actually, I feel totally your research. I mean, so this is, this is what I'll do. I'll say, uh, because I'm not confident, uh, uh, the, that I, that I knew the answer in the first place. And then the way that you just introduced the answer with confidence, right. Then I'm going to start to really consider your answer and then think it's probably true. In fact, almost assign like a 90 something percent certainty to that, but then probably still Actually, you know what? I wouldn't look it up. If I was doing my due diligence, though, I should look it up afterwards. Uh, but I would accept that answer. And that's the honest, transparent you know, stream of consciousness around this. No, that's great because you didn't go to 100%. And you said that, yeah, it would probably be best to look it up. But you also left yourself open to be able to change in the future. Yeah. Here's the thing. like, Imagine being that open to new evidence and to changing your mind for all of your other beliefs. Right? Mm-hmm. And that's That'd be great. That'd be great. Like, oh, climate change. Here's the evidence for climate change. Cool. Climate change is a thing. Like we should probably do something about climate change. So um, getting students to understand um, that their beliefs don't have to define them. And actually, if you care about what's true, and my students by and large say that they do until, of course, a belief that they care about is potentially threatened, um, which is why this exercise is important. Um, yeah, th- this process of belief formation doesn't have to be yes or no, black or white, true or false. And it doesn't have to mean that I take it personally when it's challenged. Um, getting them to rethink their epistemology into something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And then, look, sorry, I, I do want to ask, does this, does it help at all? I mean, maybe this is better done through like exercises or activities, I'm guessing, but does it help at all to uh, tell uh, students that, um, well, if depending on what it is that you believe, right, not only do you take action on it, right, but you also you look for evidence of that in the environment. So then knowing that, let's say then it was introduced like, oh, but you can actually change your beliefs, right? So 
if if you let's say change your boot that could give you sort of a different result of what you kind of see out there so like for example if somebody had a a view of like oh the world is cruel people are unfriendly unkind you know or or uh they're whatever something like that but now we're getting into core beliefs let's say they thought that yeah, right yeah. uh but then you introduce this idea of well you look for evidence of whatever you believe in right so wouldn't it be interesting if you know as an experiment maybe you played with seeing if you could change your belief even though it's not so simple it's it's simple not easy right but yeah. um like does that ever help any any students like i remember i heard that one time i was like oh you look for evidence of what you believe in yeah. oh okay what do i currently believe in oh is this belief even serving me right can i add to that you would also discount the evidence against it you would be like oh that doesn't count for you. yeah if i was doing it properly yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Um, so in the progress of how I, um, how I flow through this in, uh, class. So, um, I, it should be noted that I have like tested various iterations of this and I don't know if this is the right way, but it is the best way that I found so far. So after perception and memory, um, I go into, um, skepticism and then metacognition and um, and general critical thinking, where I teach students about the various biases and heuristics and fallacies that we can fall for. Um, and always try to use humorous examples. So when I introduce confirmation bias, which is what you're talking about, um, my husband and I like to play cards and um, I don't like to lose. Generally, I'm not like a very good loser. So um, we'll start to play cards. Our favorite card game is called golf. Um, and I'll say literally uh, it happens every, every freaking time. Mm -hmm. You can curse. Remember. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> really try not to, but thank you. Um, so, um, I'll say, God, every time I play this game, you kick my ass. He's like, mm -hmm. what are you talking about? You win all the time. No, I don't. You beat me by like 30 points last time. Mm -hmm. Pulls up notes because he's been taking score right? Mm -hmm. He's got all of the scores and the running total. And currently the running total is something like, I don't know, like 120 to 70. Mm -hmm. I win almost all more than not. Mm -hmm. um, okay. Well, last time you beat me. And so looks at the score, actually last time you beat me by like 30 points. Wow. Mm. Okay. Mm -hmm. But the point is that I only know that I'm wrong. I only know that I'm wrong because he's keeping score. Right. If he wasn't keeping score, my memory, my perception of that event and how I remember it would be completely off. And mm -hmm. I do this for a living. Right? And mm -hmm. so like, I, it's to me such a brilliant example of how in our day to day life, once we have formed a belief, we're constantly, not consciously, but finding evidence that supports it and discounting evidence that doesn't. And the more important that belief is to us, the more likely we are to do it. And so to get ourselves out of that, we have to do what scientists do, which is instead of trying to find evidence for why we're right, we have mm -hmm. to try to find evidence why we're wrong. Mm -hmm. Instead of trying to confirm my belief, how would I disconfirm it? How would I prove myself wrong? And that shift in thinking is actually really powerful because the first question is, can I prove this wrong? Because if I can't, then it's a different kind of claim or belief. It's unfalsifiable. But if I can, how would I do that? And purposefully train my brain to search for the kinds of evidence that would disprove me. 
Right. I love that. Um, so what's so interesting, and I know we were talking about my mentor a little bit before the show, so you're going to love this. So my mentor, Tim Stroop, he taught a class called Ethics and Law. Here's what he used to do. This was fucking brilliant. I promise you, everybody hated it. So what he would do is to, at the end of the course, so once it was pretty much coming to an end or about to be over, he would actually have like this major class debate. And so what he would do is um, he would, uh, so like whatever your, let's say, stance was, I mean, it, this was kind of hard to do. So sometimes a little, it was a little bit random because most of us were going to be liberal. So let's say we picked the topic, right? So he'd be like, okay, what's, what's like a vote? What do you guys want to talk about? Oh, okay. Affirmative action. That's what we're going to debate. Okay. So he'd say, who's pro, you know, people raise their hands, who's against and people raise their hands. Okay, great. So the pros you're arguing against, and then the against you're arguing the pro. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was insane, man. Just so fucking cool. And what you find is toward the end of the class where people actually, so it's not that anybody essentially, um, nobody switched sides. And again, there were some neutral parties that were like, ah, oh, whatever. Okay. I'll just pick one or the other. Nobody exactly switched sides, but what you found was there was more of a kind of a, a kind of harmony between the two sides where there was an understanding of like, oh, okay, we can see where at the very least you're coming from. And that was always his point. And um, so that's kind of how he helped me just generally because he would tell me like, look, dude, you don't have to necessarily subscribe to my beliefs, but don't like straw man these arguments, man. He's like, because I think a lot of times what you're doing is you're looking at the other side and you're saying, okay, yeah, you guys believe this nonsense, but we don't. And he's like, at the very least, if you want to be well-rounded, look at what the other side is actually saying. Steel manning, as you know, Alan would say. Oh yeah, you know, you know what uh, steel manning is? Yeah. yeah, I love that. I love that. Yeah, if, if that was done more often, right, yeah. where you actually like say the other person's argument, even strengthen it, right, and then say your piece, and then you both kind of did that vice versa. It it it's almost like also it doesn't just accomplish that you see why they're thinking what they're thinking. Um, there's also like, it's sort of like rapport building too. Cause like you, you feel understood by the other person and because you feel understood, then all of a sudden you start to kind of maybe loosen the reins on those, like, mm, how should I put this, that reactivity. Yeah, it's that, not combative. Yeah. It becomes less about being combative and just more about, you know, some kind of shared understanding, ideally at least. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a more charitable way of arguing, first of all, like um, one of the easiest ways to defeat an argument. And for those who can't see me, I'm putting up these air quotes. Um, one of the easiest ways to defeat an argument is to straw man it. And it happens to science arguments all the time. Like that's not what science is saying, but it seems like you've won because you've defeated this version that isn't real. Right. Steel manning um, is more charitable and it's also like, it's better for your position. I'm forgetting who said it and it's just terrible, but um, it's he who knows only of his own side doesn't know the half mm. of it or something. Oh, I, wow. I, okay. That's a good quote. It, it's basically like, if you only know your side, you don't know your own argument. Right. Um, but actually when you're talking to yourself, because I think that's what your professor was trying to get you to do was to argue with yourself and to form arguments for different sides to see which one has a better argument. Um, yeah, when we're trying to, um, it's the shift from finding arguments to support my position to trying to find why I might be wrong. Um, one of my favorite questions to ask my students is, what are you wrong about? Right, because of course, if you knew you were wrong about something, you would change your mind. I mean, theoretically, mm -hmm. right? Nice. So, but it's almost impossible that you're right about everything. <laughs> so what are you wrong about? And how would you know? And the the way to do that, I found um, when arguing with yourself, I give my students an epistemology exercise early on. And I say, okay, one to 10 or zero to 100, how confident are you, right? Put it on that spectrum. So like, um, Alan, you said um, initially you were what, like 10%? Yeah. And then you move to like 90 on the elephant belief, right? On move to yeah. 90%. I love how you avoid, uh, avoided zero and 100, mm -hmm. right? Because yeah. 
we want to like leave ourselves open to changing our mind. But then what you did was you shifted your confidence based on the evidence that you heard. And because you didn't care, it was easy for you to shift your, uh, your confidence level. But if you didn't hear, like if it was something that was more important to you, um, so let's say that you said that you were 90%. Instead of trying to think, what would it cause, uh, what would it take for me to get to 100%? You're like how, completely confident that I'm right. What would it take to shift my thinking? What would it take for me to be less confident? Hmm, let me back up for a second. Why am I not 100%? So instead of going from 90 to 100%, go, why could I be wrong? What would it cause me to change my mind? I'm still not entirely sure I'm saying this right, but I hope you understand what I'm saying. Because yeah. you can't change your mind, right? It, for Especially for core belief. Instead of me changing your mind, you thinking, what would it take to change my mind? Right. No, totally. Um, you, uh, so there's a philosopher, Alan Watts. Uh, it wasn't just from him that I got this idea. I had it even earlier too, but uh, he articulated it interestingly. He he basically said like, in any particular situation, there's always, there there's an infinite number of variables that could be taken into consideration, right? But w what people tend to do is they, they limit those variables and kind of construct a narrative or a story around it right. or a position, whatever. Um, that helped me to also kind of see that, okay, what am I not taking into consideration? What are, what are these unlimited variables that I'm missing from, from this, um, from the equation? Right. Um, also in terms of just discourse with other people, if they have a different perspective, I also tend to do that too. I'm like, well, something along the lines of not exactly how am I wrong, but basically how am i wrong like it basically well, what am i missing what am i missing yeah. what what why is this person thinking the way that they're thinking what variables that do they have that i don't have or rather what am i what are they seeing that i'm not seeing and is there a way that we can both see what we are both thinking and try to come to some sort of harmonious right, right. I love that. that. Yeah. And by the way, I actually do that a lot with well, the best. I don't want to say I do that a lot. I mean, unfortunately, yeah. but that's actually the best part of some of my therapy sessions when you have two people who let's say, and I hate this when the patient says, well, I remember you saying this and all of a sudden I get defensive. I'm like, no, I never said that. And I'm like, wait, hold on. Did I say that? And then, so the conversation would go from, okay, did, I didn't say that too. And then I'm thinking about it. I'm like, oh no. Okay. I think I said some version of that, but I think the meaning that you're taking away from it might be off. So what happens is there's a sort of synthesis there, right? Where there's a little bit of truth there and there's a little true, bit of truth on my end. So where I'm like, oh, okay, this is not exactly, it wasn't as extreme as what I, what you thought I meant, but I get what you're saying and saying that, you know, I, I don't want to get into like specific examples, but like, I get what you're saying when you're saying that you thought I said this because I did say some version of it. Oh yeah. Right. Misunderstanding, yeah. especially too, right. You wanted to convey something, but then the way they took it was differently. And a lot of times arguments or disagreements kind of start from you believing 100% you know what's going on or what was said. Uh, so uh, if people act, keep acting from that, the, it, the path that that conversation could take could take sort of a toxic turn. Right. But if both people were you know, open enough to critically think like, oh, okay, wait, did you understand what I was saying? Or did I properly understand yeah. what you were saying? Or did I probably convey it? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then that can avoid misunderstandings as well um, in that domain. I, I wanted to also, sorry, I, I do want to- Because I think, Melody, did you want to comment on that? Because I, I saw you, you were like trying to My say bad. something. I want to say something after. Okay. No, I just totally love what I'm hearing. Um, Because this gets back to like, um, 
thinking of um, an argument, reframing it in your head between um, a battle to win to a collaborative search for the truth. And um, I can't imagine how many of the world's problems we could solve if we all went in like, I'm not completely confident. I'm open to changing my mind. Let's work on this together and help each other see each other's blind spots and biases and come to a better conclusion than each of us might individually have been able to get to. Yeah, I love it. Totally. And and what I wanted to ask is actually, how did how did you get into creating uh, Thinking is Power and then also joining the Mental Immunity Project? So Thinking is Power came from, uh, I was teaching the class, Science for Life, and I thought, um, so um, textbooks, college textbooks are ridiculously expensive. And um, I, if I'm going to have my students buy one, I'm going to use it. And I, I couldn't find one that I really liked. So I started writing for them. Um, and um, the the website's name came about from this idea that knowledge is power. I mean, because we've all heard that, right? Knowledge is power. And there's just too much to know, right? There is too much information out there. And it is not it's not even possible for each one of us to have access to all of it. We do, however, have access to all of it in our pockets. So the question is, can you think better about that information? So instead of knowledge is power, it was thinking is power. Um, and then as I was um, writing for my students, I kind of thought, well, I'll put this out on social media and see if people actually are interested. And turns out there are people out there who really want to improve their thinking. And it makes me feel better about, you know, humanity and what it is that I'm trying to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you then are, the mental, the mental immunity project. Oh, the mental immunity project. Oh, so um, yeah, I was uh, just posting um some of the content, and I started to do more for educators, um, because if you are able to get an educator, then you're able to get all of their students. So it's like a one for, and then all of the students they have now and forever. So, um, uh, I was using um. One of my favorite things to do in class is um, inoculation activities, and I started writing about those, and um, Andy Norman saw me, and we then um, started this this great partnership where now I'm doing curriculum for um, and communication for the Mental Immunity Project. But inoculation, did you want me to talk about inoculation? Oh, please. please. Yeah. Yeah. So um, inoculation theory uh, dates from the 60s is William McGuire. And um, his idea was, um, so if we consider like a vaccine will expose the body to bits of a germ uh, so the body can build immunity to it. And then the real world, it's exposed to the germ, it can fight it off. Um, it works the same for misinformation and that you could expose the brain to a bit of misinformation under um, conditions in which it's expecting it and you can um, uh, help them build antibodies to it that in the real world, they're inoculated against that misinformation. Now there's different kinds of inoculation. It's been like what, 60 years since um, McGuire's first research. And there's wonderful researchers out there putting out great um, uh, research. So like Sandra Vanderlinen and John Rosenbeek, John Cook, um, Stephen Lewandowski. Um, So there's different kinds of inoculation though. Um, There's passive versus active. So passive inoculation is when I explain to you why something is wrong. An active inoculation is the person builds antibodies themselves by creating the misinformation. Mm-hmm. There's also fact um, and technique based. So fact based is here's the facts why it's wrong. Um, and technique based is the techniques used to mislead. Mm-hmm whether it's logical fallacies or rhetorical techniques or whatever it is. So um, I use a combination of um, active technique-based. 
I will, um, whatever the form of misinformation is, um, uh, teach my students the techniques that that misinformation uses and then have them create misinformation. Mm. Um, and I was writing about that and that that that's how he uh, found me. But um, I have several um, active inoculation, active technique-based inoculation activities that are just, they're so much fun and they're a version of where um, students are engaged in the learning process and they're humorous and, um, um, yeah, the students really enjoy the process. I can give you some examples if you're interested. Please, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Um, so one of the first ones I do, um, logical fallacies are a great way to, um, like very quick and dirty way to, yeah, this seems like it might not be right, right? So first red flags, but they're also like a trillion of them and they go by a gazillion different names and they have like all kinds of overlap between them and whatever. So they're really hard to learn. Um, what I'll do is I'll teach my students about um, different kinds of innocu uh, of sorry um, logical fallacies, mm -hmm. and then um, I have them pretend. Actually, I came up with this exercise. It was the end of the semester um, a few years ago, and I was this is class that focuses on critical thinking, and I have students write me these emails about why they shouldn't fail the class, and I'm going, if you think this is a good argument, you did not learn what I wanted you to teach, what I was trying to teach you, so you don't deserve to pass. But um, so. <laughs> Early in the semester, I, I just nip this in the bud and I say, okay, it's the end of the semester and you're failing because you deserve to fail. Like, let's be clear, you didn't do the work. Mm -hmm. You need to write me an email arguing for why you should pass the class using at least four of these fallacies that you learn in class. Mm -hmm. And they post them to a discussion board um, and then they have to find the logical fallacies in each other's emails. Mm -hmm. So they'll say things like, if I fail this class, then people are, um, I'm not going to get into graduate school and then I won't be a doctor and then people are going to die. And it's <laughs> you didn't pass, pass me, right? So there's a great slippery slope or they'll say, I don't know why you care about my grade so much. There are homeless people. Like literally there's homeless people, right? You should care about them, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a great red herring. Um, they'll say, oh, um, my parents think I should pass. So there's an uh, appeal to authority or all of the other students think this too. So there's mm -hmm. an appeal to the masses. They love insulting me. So um, the ad hominems, right? Like um, um, you are so boring. And if you actually cared about students, you would make a better curriculum and wow. your stuff. Is oh yeah. I mean, it's all for, for Jess. Oh, appeal to emotion. There's lots of grandmas and dogs that die. Um. Yeah. And so they write these and, and I'm encouraging them to have fun, right? This is something they care about. And it's a single, I also find that students have trouble with um, um, fallacies in that if I give them examples for specific issues, what they'll do is they'll associate that issue with that fallacy, as opposed to seeing how one could make lots of different arguments that are fallacious in different ways for the same argument. Mm -hmm. So that's what they're doing with this argument that they, they care about, but they're having fun. They're joking about it. It's humorous, right? And then they're seeing the fallacies in each other's arguments. That is a much better way for them to learn how fallacies can be used to mislead than me being like, okay, well, here's a uh, red hom uh, ad hominem, and here's how you use an ad hominem. So um, the creating the misinformation is what helps inoculate them. Wow, I love that. And then so I know you talked a little bit about your religious background on another podcast. So can you tell us a little bit about that and how that how you kind of were steered away from it and essentially how critical thinking, you know, I guess in contrast to it became an important critical component of your life? <laughs> I'm a little concerned about what you've heard me talk about previously. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
No. Okay. So um, I grew up in small town, Iowa, mm-hmm. uh, very small town. I grew, uh, graduated with 39 and that was literally half my county. Um, I still don't know how to parallel park mm-hmm. to this day. Like I learned to drive in a cornfield. Wow. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a very religious area. Um, and I grew up in a religious fundamentalist church that, um, like the earth was 6,000 years old and God created everything, um, as it currently is. Um, oh, and God created, um, man to serve, um, uh, in his image and then created woman to serve him mm-hmm. and that she was the cause of all sin in the world. And that because of that, for the rest of eternity, she has to be like a servant to, to man. And I was like, I don't know, this doesn't seem right. And my mom, um, my mom's always like, Melanie, you can do anything anybody with a penis can do. Actually, that's always what she would say. Um, mm-hmm. Except for pee standing up. Mm-hmm. She's wrong about that too, by the yeah. way. <laughs> um, <laughs> enough dirt roads, you figure it out. Mm-hmm. Um. But I remember thinking, mom, you're giving me a different message than what I'm getting from um, my church. And so um, I went to um, I went to college and I wanted to be a veterinarian. So I was studying biology, um, but it was actually World Civ One. It was one of those like history electives that you had to take of ancient civilizations. And I remember the professor saying, um, talking about the different civilizations um, that evolved in different areas and how um, each one had different environmental conditions. And so the gods they created had different characteristics and they, they, they functioned differently. And she was relating gods they, that the humans in those areas created because of their different experiences. And I remember, like, I still to this day, my memory is probably tainted, but I remember sitting in my chair going, holy crap, um, that actually makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Instead of God creating man, man creating God, um, and so it totally changed, like this went off in my brain. Um, and then since then, um, I just became more open to the kinds of arguments that I was hearing outside of my church um, until I it, it finally sort of crumbled for me and, and I left the church entirely. Um, but looking back on it, um, I know I was primed for it. I know I was, um, had a reason that, um, the beliefs weren't serving me. And so I think I was probably more open to changing my mind. Um, I'm not sure had the belief not been so, um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for. Like restrictive, limiting. And maybe even loose. It was a little bit looser because it seems like you, for your mom, it wasn't as important. Um, I guess the, the belief that I was being sold, um, had me view myself and my place in this world in such a negative light mm-hmm. that, um, like it was impacting how I, I viewed myself. Like it was a very negative self-esteem kind of thing. And so, um, so yeah, I think I was more open to it in, in that regard. Um, everybody has to come to their own beliefs at different times, of course. And I'm not saying that, you know. Um, there is no purpose for religion. No, there is no God even. I'm just saying that that's how my own experience happened. Mm. Uh, And so it does help me, I think, be a little bit more empathetic to um, students who might hold different belief systems. 
Yeah. Yeah. And the religious belief, I guess it's interesting uh, in your respect, because I mean, it, it kind of minimized you. So it made it more likely, I would argue that you would challenge it or look for alternatives. So I mentioned, you know, before the show with like when I was a conspiracy theorist, it was actually the opposite for me. So because the kind of those beliefs actually put me in the spotlight and made me feel like I had special knowledge, it was incredibly hard for me to change. So yeah. I mean, if you have any questions, by the way, because I know you were interested before, please go ahead. You can ask. No, I totally do. Because it's so <laughs> hard to get out of conspiratorial thinking. It is yeah. a rabbit hole, right? It is yeah, a trap. Yeah. And so yeah. I'm curious, how did that happen? Oh, so which part? So getting into it or getting out of it? Um, well, I'm sure it's all interesting, but especially getting out. Oh, so getting out. Okay. So yeah. So my mentor, Tim Stroop. Uh, so I took his class in 2011. So the ethics and law class. And then, so I was such an asshole. So I sat in the, I sat in the front, like literally directly in the middle and I would challenge him on almost everything you could challenge him on. Uh, so I was like, really, oh my God, let's see. Let me, let me get into all of this stuff. Uh, so I believed in, at the time I wasn't so deeply into it, but I still kind of was reptilians. Uh, so yeah, 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 yeah. You so were all the way down. I was all the way down. So reptilian, uh, the Jewish banker conspiracy with the Rothschilds. Uh, what else was there? So the Ron Paul stuff, I was super libertarian. So I was like, you got to end the Federal Reserve. Like, it's all terrible. Uh, so and not really into like silver coins and then the collapse of the dollar. I think I was already kind of beyond that. I didn't think that was coming, but I still wasn't that far away from it either. So what I used to do is I would challenge him on mostly everything. And I was thinking like, yeah, you know, like I would eventually debunk him. I would make him look stupid. Uh, people would side with me, whatever, even though I look like a complete moron. So the thing is with him, what he did was he was like, dude, like, are you going to actually be open to some of these things that I have to say? Because oftentimes what, you ha what happens is you either avoid the arguments altogether and you just shut down or you kind of redirect it into something other than what I'm actually talking about and bringing up. And so I was like, oh, I'm not doing that. That's bullshit or whatever. So the thing for him is that he could have easily just shut me down and been like, like you kid, like you're just a waste of my time. And this guy, I mean, you know, so I, this is objectively true. And I mean, he would hate, you know, me kind of saying these things about him. He was a genius. He was literally brilliant. I'm sure, honestly, he had better things to do than to talk to me. But for whatever reason, you know, he decided it was worth his time. And so as kind of we started a little bit of a friendship at the time in the beginning, and as the course was winding down, we had like conversations outside of it. Uh, I'd come to visit him. Him. And the running joke was that like, he's like, he and I would like disagree about everything. So uh, some years later, I would say probably for like another two years after the fact, I would come visit him and I would actually speak to his classes at that time. So he would ask former students, he would say, Hey, can you guys like come and just like, let, you know, these kids know like what to expect, uh, like what my kind of how what my expectations are, uh, what the workload is like, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So he and I used to kind of joke and banter in the front of the class. He'd be like, Oh yeah, he and I disagree on everything, but he's literally wrong about everything. And I joke and I'd be like, no, he just doesn't know it. He's the one who's wrong about everything. So, okay. Fast forward. Right. And this is again years later, man. So I would say from 2011 to about 2014, I still. So, by the way, my conspiratorial side dates back probably to 2007, 2008. But from when I met him from 11 to about 14, I still pretty much, I was pretty strongly, uh, pretty strongly in it. And then, so, but from that time, so this was, I would say, a year or two after the class ended, he's like, Hey, can I send you some books? And I'm like, Oh, dude, I don't have time for this stuff. Like, this is all horseshit. And he's like, Oh, come on, man. He's like, You really want me to take you seriously and you really want to have these like discussions, you know, you should be able to understand what the other side actually thinks. I'm not trying to change your mind. He's like, I want you to be able to actually know what you're arguing against. So I said, fine, I will read some of your books, right? So two books that stood out to me, American Amnesia, and then another one called The Self-Made Myth. So remember, I'm a staunch libertarian at this time, right? So I'm like, oh, The Self-Made Myth. I'm like, what are you talking? I'm like, that's all bullshit. I'm like, that's all commie, like socialist bullshit, right? So I read this book and I'm like, oh my God, like, holy shit. I'm like, maybe there is no 
such thing as a self-made person. So whatever, I message him and I'm like, hey, okay, I could see some of the points in, you know, in the book or whatever. But I'm like, but I still think that I pretty much that I, I'm still a libertarian. I still think that people, for the most part, make their own destiny, create their own success, et cetera, right? Then I read American Amnesia, which he actually got me for my graduate school graduation. But at this point, I was already pretty much out of it. So I don't remember exactly what happened in the in-between. Uh, so, but lots of conversations with he and I. I mean, this is just obviously going back way too far at this point. But lots of conversations with he and I. And then there was a lot of just, there was a lot of sympathy on his end. And for the most part, and we had Lee McIntyre on, and he said, this is pretty effective. And I agree with him. Uh, so the thing is for my mentor he never thought that i was an idiot so he could have easily shut me down and said like dude like you're just stupid like why are you doing this like you're wasting your life he never did that he's like if anything he would tell me and my other mentor was like this too he'd be like dude like you're too smart for this why are you why are you in this stuff like you're literally ruining your life and so i think the patience was there i think the sort of high degree of esteem was there which i really appreciated and the fact that even when we bantered none of it was offensive or combative so if anything actually i was the combative one so when i said to you off air i said it was actually him doing most of the work. What I mean by that is that I was incredibly resistant. So I came into our relationship, whatever it was in the beginning. I mean, eventually we developed a friendship, but at the beginning it was, it was, a, it, he was a friend of me, right? So I came into the relationship thinking like, I'm going to fucking prove this old man wrong. I am going to show him that I'm smarter than him. I know more than he does. Like every, his whatever, 40, 50 years of education is completely worthless. And at the time, even though I was in college, paradoxically, I thought college was a waste of time as well. How did that work? I don't even know. Um, but the point is that the patience was really helpful. The fact that he gave me books because he took me seriously was really helpful. And I mean, look, honestly, I would have never bought those books on my own. I would have never spent the money on them. Uh, so, but essentially him doing that was, was really helpful because the fact is that again, it was not something I was going to invest in on my own, but he did that for me. He invested on my behalf. And then I would say on top of that, what, this is the identity shift that happened for me. I realized that I could be accepted in academia without having to, or instead of having to combat it and sort of be, um, be uh, let's say, I guess, adversarial toward it, right? So I'm not, not to get into this because I don't want to get off, a off on a tangent. But the thing is, for me, when I was a kid, I was actually really shamed because also, like, I have pretty bad ADD. I mean, you people may know it. Uh, so the thing is, like, I, people, my teachers at the time, late 90s, thought I was incredibly slow. Uh, they would actually point it out and shame me in the classes. And I'd be like, I remember there was this one time where this kid is like, oh, yeah, he's really slow. And the teacher's like, yeah, I can tell. And I'm like, dude, what the fuck? Yeah, and I had, like, several of these moments. Yeah. So I hated school. I fucking hated it. And so when I got to college, I was like, oh, cool. Now I'm going to show all of these people that I'm actually smarter than them. And so he, I guess he had some sort of intuitive sense of that. And so instead of actually like challenging me and making me look stupid, just like they did, he took a different perspective and his perspective was like, okay, let me, let me just see where this goes. Let me take him seriously. Uh, let me give him some things because I mean, there were some things that I was right about. And he would tell me, he's like, no, no. He's like, there's like kernels of truth in what you're saying. And I do agree with some of your points, but for the most part he's like what you're actually getting at at the core is just not there so like you know not to get into this another thing too much but like conspiracies he's like yeah some conspiracies are true he's like i'm not arguing that none of this is, is factual what i'm saying is that you're implying some sort of deep level you know deep state conspiracy that most likely doesn't exist and here's why right but he's like no he's like i don't think a lot of this stuff is wrong he's like i just think the core like principles or these core truths are wrong and then so yeah at some point little by little uh we kind of developed a kind of a, a shared understanding of what reality was so i would say that i wouldn't agree with him a hundred percent on everything but for the most part at some point yeah we came to a pretty much a pretty a consensus yeah that's it that's my story man well so what i heard there was um Correct me if I'm wrong. There was sort of a turning point where he said that um, if you read these books, you will know more about what you're arguing against. Yes. 
So that encouraged you to at least open your mind enough to, to, or to accept the challenge of reading the books. Yeah. But then doing so started to change your mind. Yeah. Yeah. So initially the, this was my thinking. He didn't actually say this. So my thinking was like, oh, okay. Yeah. You know what? I should read these books because if I'm going to be taken seriously, I should actually know what I'm arguing against because for the most part, I get secondhand information from the other side, you know, from my side. And so the thinking is, okay, if I'm going to be like some sort of intellectual, or whatever, I have to actually read the other side. So yeah, initially, I, I guess it was kind of a trap in a way. Uh, so, and I'm sure he saw it this way too, but yeah, as I started reading the material, I was like, oh my God, man. Oh, and here's the other thing that helped. I really, realized I was duped. That was the other thing too. I realized that the conspiracy side was actually fucking fooling me because they were making money off of me. And I was like, Oh my God, I was, a f I was scammed. Yeah. That was another thing too. I don't know if he intended that. I'm not exactly sure. Cause he never said it, but that's what essentially I took away from it. There was so at that turning point, I was like, Oh my God, man, this whole time I was feeding into this shit. And it's just like the wellness industry, you know, whatever vitamin supplements, etc. All of these people who are making money off of books, uh, off of their, you know, if you're Alex Jones and the survival seeds, uh, their product, products, right? I realized that I was just another sucker for it. So yeah, so that was another aspect of it too. I forgot actually about that. Oh, that's brilliant. Actually, because there's that um, Carl Sagan said somebody defective, like once you've been bamboozled, once you've been conned, you uh -huh. don't get to yourself. Yeah. Bamboozled or conned. So you're going to just keep buying into it. But you were able to see that you were being conned and I, I, I just have, I, I need to know how that happened. I see it happen all the time, right? Yeah. People will accuse, ironically, they'll accuse me of being like a shill for big pharma. I'm like, I, I am an educator. I'm like doing this for free. Um, right. People who are telling you that are making bank. But how do I, how do I get them to see that? Yeah, yeah. So I mean, but again, for me, it was a combination of the two. So I think because he was there, and I already had the support, you know, saying that, okay, like, you can actually be a part of our, our, our team or whatever, you can be a part of the you know, academia, taken seriously here, I think it was much easier for me to do that. Because if here's my thinking, right? So if there wasn't a him there, what I think would have happened is I would have felt lost and pretty much isolated, I would be like, okay, where do I go now? So it would have been practical on the one hand, well, first of all, self esteem too, right? On the one hand, it would have been like, Oh, my God, I feel like shit about myself. But on the other, and by the way, I'm, all, I'm reconstructing this as best as I can. So on the one hand, I think there would have been diminished self-esteem and I would have been like, oh my God, I feel like such an idiot. I'm a moron. And on the other hand, it's like, okay, but who do I turn to now? Like if I'm not in this circle, where do I go? And by the way, when I left, people stopped talking to me because I had friends in those circles. So, okay, but here's the thing with his foundation and then the sort of people he introduced me to, friends that I had at that point, what I realized is, okay, I'm not an idiot because he thinks this way about me, which I really valued because I really held him in high regard. And then on the other hand, I'm like, well, but I do have somewhere to turn to. I could turn to this circle. Like these people really accept me. So I think you really need that. I think the support on the one hand that tells you, hey, you're not an idiot for being tricked. And then because there were really good reasons for it. And I had family members who were into the, like the conspiracy stuff. So again, and obviously I had my background in school, which was really kind of difficult or whatever. Uh, and then on top of that, I also had somewhere to turn to. So what I think happens is for people in conspiracy circles, they often have nothing else. So what happens is they, or at least this is what they predict, that they think if they go out of it, people will laugh at them and say, ha, I told you you were an idiot. How did you fall for this? You're so stupid. And then it's like, okay, where do I go to now when people don't even respect me anymore? Interesting. Yeah. There's a, there's a, there's also a, an aspect to this, which I wonder if you would agree with mm. if, if I had to like dis dissect it a little bit. So there's that aspect of him giving belonging, right? Do you think that also the appeal to like, you'll be taken seriously or you'll be, you'll have this identity of intellectual if you read these things that challenge your belief and yeah. understand it, like as if, so yes, there was a challenge, but there was also like, 
if you adhere to this, or rather, you can adhere to this really strong identity mm -hmm. or this strong character if you do this action. Yeah. And then that was something that you really wanted to do as well, besides the acceptance. You know, to be honest, man, if, I, if I'm really just being honest, I love that. And I wish that were actually true. I think it was actually simpler than that, man. I think literally because I already valued him so much at that point, I just wanted to make him happy. I was like, cool, if I read his books, like he's just going to appreciate me for doing that. So great. I'm still going to disagree with him. But at the very least, I could say, well, I read your books. Yeah, it just makes me want to think about like, oh, then if if there had to be like a structure or step by step or like a way to baby step someone out of uh, yeah, yeah. irrational beliefs, let's say, or not irrational, just yeah, yeah, yeah. out of False a one-sided yeah. way of looking at things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was just kind of looking for that or seeds of that from your story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The other thing I heard there was um, connection and empathy and kindness and having a place to belong. Um, and I think that's so important as a, as a science communicator, you get all kinds of just shit thrown at you and, um, called names and all that terrible kind of, um, just the kinds of behavior online that we would not do face to face. Right. Um, but I find that, um, maintaining a position of kindness and um, um, engaging with people in a good faith effort to try and connect with them where they are, even on social media, it doesn't help everyone. Like I can't reach everyone, but it does help to set a tone. And um, I see other science communicators and I can, I understand why they do it. Like you get upset for being attacked all the time. And, you know, the evidence is really on your side and you're having to say the same damn thing for like the trillionth time to a hostile audience. Like I get it. But mocking people will never change their mind, right. right? So if we want to change people's minds, then we have to be we have to be kind. And your professor, obviously, wow, that was incredible. Did a great job of because um, I have to say, if you were in my class, like trolling me from the middle front, I'd be like, I have all these other students I also need to talk to. <laughs> yeah, you know, and by the way, so it was so interesting. And it's so I love that you're saying that because so when I used to do this stuff all throughout my life, like this is not even just new. Uh, so when I was a kid, and I used to do that, all of my teachers hated me, man, they fucking hated me. And they're like, Oh, my God, when I thought that I was gonna have you in my class, I was like dreading it. I think with him, he had yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he had a degree of confidence that I would argue very many teachers don't. And I'm not saying that they should, by the way, I wasn't. First of all, I was a difficult kid. I was a difficult teenager. And I was definitely a difficult college student. But I think he had a degree of confidence uh, that I think most people don't have and the other thing is i think for him so here's my thinking for the most part i think teachers because they're struggling so much they're just trying to get through the day and they want to get out of there right uh for him i really think it was his mission to just genuinely help people this was a person who i kid you not every single day he had to go to school so he taught at john jay college so he lived upstate he drove three hours there and three hours back i kid you not yeah three hours there and three hours back he didn't need to he could have retired at this point so when he taught in 2011 he already could have retired a decade before and I mean, he even taught, by the way, 10 years after the fact. So he retired in 2021. So yeah, he could have taught for, he could have retired 20 years before then. And this was a guy who lived a million miles away and he traveled there and back because he definitely, he deeply cared about teaching. So it's a lot, man. I know. And it's also a lot to ask for from other people. So I get it. Wow. Um, this person sounds like a superhero. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. I'm a really, really amazing human being. Um, okay. So as we begin to wrap up, Alan, final questions for Melody before we go? Uh, yes. Uh, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, and of course, uh, follow the Mental Immunity Project, uh, how can we- And also, by the way, why should we follow the Mental Immunity Project? 
Oh, the uh, mental immunity project. Yes. Mm -hmm. um, so um, I should say, uh, Circe is the research collaborative, and that's where um, all of the wonderful, and I lovingly say this, eggheads produce this really great knowledge for humanity. Um, um, eggheads don't necessarily do the best job of talking to people. And to be fair, that's not their job. So um, what I'm trying to do, what the Mental Immunity Project is trying to do is translate some of that to things that people can use. And so the Mental Immunity Project is the front facing group of that. It is um, trying to provide the knowledge from the researchers to something that is tangible and useful to people. Uh, and so um, the mentalimmunityproject.org is the website um, and uh, there's Twitter and um, Facebook and Instagram. Um, and then I, so my website is Thinking is Power. And um, so Twitter and Facebook at Thinking Powers, mental immunity, uh, sorry, Instagram, Thinking is Power. Um, and I'm also trying my hand at TikTok, but oh my goodness, this old person is having trouble with all these brand new <laughs> social media. Yeah, TikTok, threads, all this stuff. I I'm with you. I'm with you as far as that goes. And yeah. just and just to give you like somewhat of a plug, because I, I mean, you don't, if you don't want to talk about it, we could completely cut it out. Uh, but what's your new book going to be about whenever that's, you know, sort of finalized? Yeah, um, my new book, the it, it's um, How to Be a Charlatan. Oh, Wow. And yeah, what I'm trying uh -huh. to do is use inoculation to help people and just like a, a um, not fall for misinformation in kind of a kitschy way, which is what I do with my students. So um, uh, if I might, just one of the other inoculation activities I do with my students is um, yeah. I have to design advertisements for pseudoscience products. Mm -hmm. So I teach them like uh, how pseudoscience works, characteristics of pseudoscience, and then how to sell it, and then have them create like an advertisement for social media using those um, techniques and, and characteristics. Uh, and they have such a great time doing it. Like you could say, um, you know, this, this all natural product has been used for centuries by, um, 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 millions of people. And it does all of these insert techno babble things that say absolutely nothing. And then like throw in some quantum woo and then say like someone has, I tried it and it worked for me. And then like put somebody in a lab coat saying something, something official, like, you know, the Institute of so-and-so says it works. Um, but like insert those into any number of products and you've got basically like 95% of the pseudoscience woof scrolling across your, your news feeds. Um, so I want to do something similar for my book, but teach people um, these same um, um, characteristics of, of different misinformation in this fun kind of way, right? It's kind of kitschy. Like, want to learn how conspiracy theories work? Here's creating your own conspiracy theory. Want to learn how propaganda works? Make some propaganda. I love that. Did you know that there's a new Netflix series? I haven't had a chance to watch how it yet. Cult leader? What, how do I? Oh, sorry. I don't go ahead. I don't how to become a shot. No, how to, how to uh, become a cult leader. Yeah, that's what I said. Oh, that is what oh, okay. <laughs> okay, I don't know this, but I feel like I need to. Yeah, yeah, it seems it looks like a really good series. It just came out on Friday. So, I mean, none of us are going to have the time yet, obviously. But yeah, it looks like a really good show. It's literally a step-by-step -step process on how to develop your own cult. I'm going to watch that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not kidding. Well, yeah, and obviously how to be a, a cult leader. <laughs> yeah. And so, obviously, we, we hope to have you back when you have the book out, because that sounds like a really great concept. Oh, I love it. Thank you. I'd love that. Absolutely. All right, Melanie, thank you so much for coming on. This, this was awesome. excellent. Yeah, yeah, very good. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. All right, we'll talk to you soon. Take care. All right. So everyone, if you'd like to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook and on Instagram. On Twitter, we're at uh, Seize underscore podcast. Like, subscribe, hit, hit the, the bell, bell on, on YouTube. YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time. We'll